All right. One more time. Good morning. Good to see everybody. Can I have you uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 17? Now, as we come to John 17, we are roughly, I don't know, about nine hours from the cross. I think it's probably around midnight. Um, and of course, Jesus would be on the cross by nine the next morning. The evening started, as we have studied, in the upper room in chapter 13 with Jesus and his disciples observing or keeping the feast of Passover. Now, I believe Jesus knew that early the next morning he would be crucified. And yet, as we saw when we studied chapters 13 and 14, that time, while they were still in the upper room, before they left to make their way to the Mount of Olives, but as we studied in uh, chapters 13 and 14, as the Lord knew he was just hours from the cross, it was obvious that Jesus wasn't worried about himself, but rather he was deeply concerned for his disciples. He knew that after he returned to his father and they began to take the gospel into the world, fulfilling the Great Commission, that they would be the targets of Satan's vicious in unrelenting attacks at the hands of his demon armies, and of course, the world system of which he, Satan, as the god of this world, controls. Now, the Lord was burdened for his disciples, and um, he knew he had to go away, but he didn't want to leave them alone. He promised to send them another comforter, the Holy Spirit, but he's still burdened for them. The Lord stressed to his disciples, his burden. Uh, before they left, uh, after they left the upper room, and as they were now making their way through the streets of Jerusalem uh, toward the uh, Golden Gate, also known as the Eastern Gate, through which they would exit the city, cross the Kidron Valley, and make their way up to the Mount of Olives, where Jesus would spend a few hours in prayer before being arrested and uh, dragged before um, Caius and Anif uh, uh, Annas and Caiaphas the high priest, and um, eventually then to Pilate. We'll study that as we get to chapter 18. But the Lord stressed to his disciples on the way to the Mount of Olives that some difficult days were coming. He wanted to prepare them. And so he warned them, if you turn back to chapter 15, this he talks to them about on the way to the Golden Gate. As they're working through the streets of Jerusalem, he said in John 15, verse 18, If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as, uh, excuse me, the world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer a part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than his master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. So that was on the way um, to the eastern gate. And then they stopped right there before they exited the city, and Jesus began to pray. He keeps this line of thought going in his prayer in John 17, where he stops teaching his disciples directly. He was talking to them directly. He was giving him what we have called his farewell address, the final discourse 
he would give to them before he went to the cross. And so he has been teaching them ever since chapter 13, really. Uh, at one point, the end of chapter 14, they actually leave the upper room, begin to make their way through the streets of Jerusalem, where he continues uh, to teach them. Stopping there at the Golden Gate, uh, chapter 15, and now, as he finishes teaching them, now he prays to the Father. But he prays to the Father in their presence. So he's not really teaching them directly any longer, but now indirectly. Because as I've said, he wanted to pray this prayer uh, in their presence because he wanted them to know what was on his heart on this night before his crucifixion. On the night before he would be taken up from them. And so he begins to pray for them to the Father. He said in verse 14, Father, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one, from the devil. Guys, in essence, the bulk of Jesus' prayer that night for his disciples concerned spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare. If we were to sum up these verses, Jesus is asking the Father, to give his disciples, both then and now, that the Father would give to his disciples victory so that they, all of us, might overcome the world, even as he, Jesus, had overcome the world. You remember that Jesus ended his formal or direct teachings, teachings to his disciples at the end of chapter 16 with a declaration of victory. Read verse uh, chapter 16, verse 33. It says, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And of course, this was spoken in anticipation of the cross. And yet, even though he had not yet gone to the cross, it was a done deal. Remember we said that in the scriptures, New Testament especially, when something hasn't happened yet, but it's a sure thing. The writers will often phrase it in the past tense, even as Jesus phrases his coming victory right now. He hasn't gone to the cross yet, of course, at the end of John 16, but he was speaking these words of victory in anticipation of his work on the cross. And after he declares this victory that he would win the next day, he then proceeds to pray for his disciples in chapter 17 that we, they, we, would be enabled by the Father to overcome the world as well. As we said last time, the word world is used 19 times in this prayer. That's a lot. Obviously, the Lord is setting up uh, a very specific kind of an idea here. It's basically us against the world, basically. I've overcome the world now by God's grace. You're going to overcome the world as well. But he talks about the world 19 times in this prayer. And every time he speaks of the world, he uses the Greek word cosmos. Now, in this context, cosmos refers to not planet Earth and ecology and nature. No, no. It refers to the fallen world system that is controlled by the devil and is in rebellion against God. We've talked about this, right? Once again, guys, throughout this chapter... 
The underlying idea or principle is that of spiritual warfare, and in particular, victory in spiritual warfare, right? As we said last week, spiritual victory comes through personal holiness. Spiritual victory comes through personal holiness, even as Jesus pointed to his personal holiness as the basis for his victory over the world. Look at verse 16. Again, praying to his Father, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Now, guys, as we said last time, the words holiness and sanctify both come from the same Greek root, and mean to be and means to be set apart to be set apart when the bible talks about god's people being holy it means of course morality is implied that we'd be moral but that's um assumed in the greater context okay when the bible talks about god's people being holy it means that we are to live our lives separately from the fallen world system that we are currently living in but must never be a part of. The great balancing act in the Christian life is to be in the world and yet not be a part of the world. We don't always balance those two things like we should, right? But we are in the world that we have no choice. God has placed us in the world. But the Lord wants us not to be a part of the world to reach the world, to be set, but to be separate from the world, right? We talked about this a lot last time. But let me just say it this way. We ought to be living separately from the world's values and actions and philosophies and ideologies as instruments used exclusively for God's glory. That's what it means to be holy, to be set apart, to be dedicated to God, all right? We are dedicated to God. And as such, our lives are only to be lived to bring God glory, to serve him, right? Not to serve ourselves anymore. God forbid we should serve the world in many ways. Oh, I have a secular job. What are you saying? You, you can work in the world. That's different from serving, promoting the world system, okay? Now, this is God's will for us. We talked about this last time. This is God's will for us, that we be holy, that we be sanctified. But listen, because the world we're living in is so corrupt and so wicked, how is that possible? And some Christians have really kind of given into the culture. It's just not possible for me to live a holy life in the midst of all the evil and darkness going on around me. Well, Daniel did it, right? And his friends, you can read the book of Daniel. Um, John the Baptist did it. Of course, Jesus did it. Many of Paul did it. There's many of God's people. And all of us should really be living uh, in the world but separate from the world and being a light in the darkness, right? Not, you know, getting sucked into the world's values and ideas and mores and everything else. We ought to remain separate. That's the dynamic of the church, by the way. It's in our separateness from the world. Not in our isolation from the world. That's, uh, you know, that's the kind of thing monks did for, for centuries. We'll just be holy by being completely, you know, separate from the world. We'll hide out in monasteries. 
and nunneries and things like that. That's not what God wants. He wants us to be actively engaging people in the world without thinking like them and acting like them and so on. Okay? All for God's glory. Now, how can this be? How, how can we accomplish this in these evil days we're living in? Well, what Jesus tells us through his prayer to the Father for his disciples. Look at verse 14. I'm sorry, verse 17. And then verse 19. How do we accomplish this? Jesus told us. Sanctify them, Father, by your truth. Your word is truth. Verse 19. I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Guys, personal holiness is the key to spiritual victory. Now, I'm not overstating that. And by the way... This is not some secret esoteric principle that I discovered after fasting for two weeks, praying night and day, and Gabriel came to me and gave me this blockbuster uh, principle, this dynamic lost key to spiritual victory. It doesn't work like that. And any character on TV and radio telling you that this principle was lost for all the years that the church has been around and God has revealed it to me, and for 75 bucks you can download my, my series on it, Anything as important as personal holiness, which again is the key to spiritual victory, is not going to be hidden by God. It's going to be found pretty much in every single page of the Bible. And it is, if we're talking about personal holiness. So one more time, personal holiness is the key to spiritual victory. And personal holiness is achieved by staying in, feeding upon, and living out the Word of God in our daily lives as his children. Now before we talk about that, let me stop here and talk a little bit about spiritual warfare in general. Some of you are familiar with these words. You've heard me teach them before, but for the sake of all the new folks, I think it's important that we stop and lay a foundation for what we're talking about. Look, sooner or later, some more later than sooner, but sooner or later, we all learn that the Christian life is a battleground, not a playground. When we gave our lives to Jesus, we entered into a war. A war that, although invisible, is still very much real. Now, all Christians understand that, believe that in theory. Often, Christians forget that in practice. Especially when husbands and wives are going at each other like cats and dogs. They don't understand there's a spiritual component in, involved there. I'm not saying it's all the devil and we have no part. We give in. I'm just saying, though, that many Christians, they, they don't really understand how this spiritual warfare works its way into their daily lives. When we gave our hearts to Jesus, we entered into this war. Again, although invisible, this war is still very much real. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. I mean, you all know this passage. I'm just going to read the first um, three verses. Ephesians 6, starting with verse 10. Where Paul said, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of 
his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places or in the spirit realm. Guys, this among many other passages in the New Testament tells us that we are at war, listen, with an extremely powerful, super-intelligent, hyper-malevolent spirit being known as the devil who commands a very powerful army of demonic soldiers. The devil and his army are determined to destroy, listen, your walk with God, your witness for God, and everything in your life that's important to you, including your marriage, your family, your ministry, your health, even your sanity. Remember that. I have been talking to more Christians lately who are honest enough to admit I feel like I'm losing my mind. I just feel this constant anxiety, um, like I'm, I'm losing it. That's spiritual warfare. I'm convinced. There might be other factors. I'm convinced as we get closer and closer to Jesus' return and the devil is ramping up his attacks more and more, this takes one of the main forms. Guys, listen, the devil isn't playing games. It seems like many of God's people are not taking this spiritual war as seriously as they should. The devil's not playing games. Many of God's people seem to be playing games when it comes to their walk with the Lord and uh, the spiritual warfare that we are all engaged in. But I know this, the devil isn't playing games, and he'll do whatever he needs to do, whatever he can do to accomplish his mission. And that is why our commanding officer, as he is referred to in Hebrews as the captain of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, working through his Holy Spirit, uh, has commanded us in his word to be good and faithful soldiers uh, to his cause every day. And the Holy Spirit laid it on the hearts of one of his field generals, and we call him Paul the Apostle, to reinforce this, which he did. And I won't have you turn to these, but you can just write down the reference. How Paul told a young pastor named Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verses 3, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4, he said, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who has enlisted him as a soldier. 1 Timothy 1, verse 18. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies, pre prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Now, guys, spiritual warfare, as we have already stated in our previous studies in John, I'm thinking of chapter 8. Spiritual warfare is primarily a battle for control of your thinking. Don't miss that. If you don't realize that, you're never going to have victory. Let me say it again. Spiritual warfare is primarily a battle for control of our thinking. In fact, the Bible teaches that the mind is actually the main battlefield in our war with the devil, the place where most spiritual warfare is fought. Now, spiritual warfare is kind of a big subject, 
and it takes different forms. And depending on what church circle you run in, that's going to be the one you focus on. And so there are those today who uh, believe that um, every bad thing going on in your life is a demon, you know? I mean, you've got anger, that's the demon of anger. Uh, lust, demon of lust. You're having a problem with chocolate cake, demon of chocolate cake. And what you need is to be delivered. Deliverance ministries are very big, right? Somebody just asked me uh, last week, what do I think about deliverance ministries? Because he's listening to a pastor down in Tennessee. And um, I said, look, I don't really um, ascribe to deliverance ministries. Do I think that we can be oppressed? Of course. Do I think we can be possessed as Christians? Absolutely not. Because possession speaks of ownership. I'm owned by Jesus Christ now. Now, that doesn't mean I can't be oppressed. That doesn't mean I can't give in to certain things. Paul said in Romans 6, if God has delivered you from certain areas of bondage and you voluntarily give yourself over to the smoke and the drinking, those things will grab a hold of you again. By God's grace, you can be free once again. But if you've been delivered, do not mess around with things you were once in bondage to. But if people do get involved in these things again, they don't need to have somebody pray over them to have a demon cast out. What did James said? Look, uh, resist the devil. Not, you know, have a, the devil and his demons cast out of you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw close to God, he will draw close to you. That's the secret of living um, a life free of bondage, right? But, again, um, most spiritual warfare is fought for control of our thinking in our minds. Satan knows if he can control your thinking, listen, he can control you. Even as Solomon said in the book of Proverbs, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. That's why the New Testament has so much to say about our minds as Christians. I won't have eternity. You can write down the references. The New Testament has so much to say about our minds as Christians because that's where most of the warfare is fought for control of our thinking. Colossians 3, verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Mark 12, verse 30, Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment of all? He said, the greatest is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Philippians 2, verse 5, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. I'll give you one more. There's many others. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11. Be careful in your walk, Paul said, lest Satan should take advantage of us. We all should be careful. For we are not ignorant of his devices. The Greek is methods, strategies. Some have even translated it mind games. Mind games. The Bible says that Satan has blinded the minds of those who do not believe, unbelievers. He has blinded their minds, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ should shine on them. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. Please don't misunderstand what Paul is saying. This, this doesn't mean they're helpless victims. Oh, Satan has blinded their mind. How fair is that? That doesn't mean they're helpless victims. Satan has blinded them because, listen, they have allowed it. They love darkness rather than light because they want to do evil. Jesus said these very things in John 3, verses 19 and 20. 
But look, once you pursue darkness, the devil gets a hold of your mind, hold of your thinking. It says in Romans 1, verse 28, about unbelievers, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, in their minds, in their thoughts, God gave them over to a debased mind. Look, you don't love light. You don't want the truth of God. As God said, there's coming a time when the, when the Antichrist rises to power. 2 Thessalonians 2. Read verses 9 to 11. But here's the deal. There is coming a time when love, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Therefore, because they don't want the light, they don't love God's truth, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. Look, if you don't want God's truth because you love darkness rather than truth, then God says, have at it. Have at it. The truth of mine will set you free from darkness and the devil's deal in your life. But if you don't want my truth, if you don't love me, if you don't want me, then you know what? You've opened yourself up to demonic deception. God gives them over to a debased mind. To do those things which are not fitting. Not fitting for a child of God. Because they don't want to be a child of God. Romans 8 verse 7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God. Nor indeed can be. What is the carnal mind? It's a mindset on the things of this earth. The flesh. Now Christians can have carnal minds. You should read 1 Corinthians chapters 2 and 3 where Paul talks about the spiritual man, the natural man, and the carnal man. The natural man, unbeliever. The spiritual man, woman, on fire, Christian. What is a carnal man? That's a person who is a believer who is preoccupied with the flesh. Carnal thoughts. They're really not laying up for themselves treasures in heaven. That's not where their heart is at. They're laying up more treasures on the earth. You say, well, can they possibly be saved? Yeah. Many are going to be ashamed at Jesus appearing, the Bible says, because they were living more for the earth and heaven. We get that. But the carnal mind is enmity against God. Now, of course, every unbeliever has a carnal mind. It's a tragedy when Christians have carnal minds. Now, Paul, in Colossians 1, talked about us before we got saved. So he's talking to Christians there in Colossae, but he's talking about, you remember how it was before we got saved. He said, and you were once alienated and enemies in your mind, alienated from God by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled you. So at one point we were all uh, of that mindset. We all lived for our flesh. This life was all we cared about and laying up for ourselves treasures on earth, although we didn't think of it biblically at all. But you understand, we were all there. And we were once alienated from God. In fact, his enemies. Why? How? Because our mind wanted to do wicked works. But thankfully, God opened our minds, opened our eyes. We got saved and received Christ. That's why, guys, salvation begins with a change of mind. I'm just laying some groundwork. Salvation begins, again, talking about how the mind is the main battlefield where spiritual warfare is fought. That's why salvation begins with a change of mind. 
I'll just read to you Acts 17, verse 30, where Paul talked to a group, I think it was Athens, I'm not sure, in Acts 17, um, about how that in Old Testament times, God didn't hold pagans accountable for a lot of what they did because they didn't have the truth. But now the truth has come into all the world through Jesus Christ. And so truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. And Paul's pressing upon them to make a decision for Christ. Get saved. Look, the Bible says that salvation requires a person to first of all repent. The Greek word for repent, repentance is metanoia, which means to have a change of mind literally means to have a change of mind. Now look, true repentance can only come from the Holy Spirit. I mean, this idea that, well, we have, you're saying, well, we have to change first before I can get saved, clean up my life. Is that what you're teaching? No, I'm not teaching that at all. The power to change comes through the Holy Spirit. The conviction to have a change of mind comes through the Holy Spirit. But I have to have a change of mind. Otherwise, I'm a robot. What's the change of mind mean? Well, I'm going down the highway of life, 100 miles an hour, moving away from God. I don't realize it at the time, but I'm doing that. And the Holy Spirit begins to get into my, my head. He begins to start convicting me. Is this really the life you think is, is a life worth living? It's, always, it's all about making money and partying. Is that really the life you th think what life is all about? You start thinking, and, no, not really. I'm kind of miserable. Um, and then somebody witnesses to you about Jesus, right? And you begin to think, I need to make a change. I don't like the road I'm on. So at one point, you get off the off-ramp, over the overpass, get on the highway going the opposite direction, hopefully 100 miles an hour now, toward God. That's repentance. Now, once a person repents and receives Jesus, once they're born again of the Spirit, once they're a Christian, at that point, we have new marching orders. We have a new command from God. Paul talked about it in Romans 12, verse 2. He said, do not be conformed. Let me paraphrase. Don't be conformed any longer to this world's way of thinking. But now you are to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? Well, you should want God's perfect will, right? Before we got saved, we didn't care about God, really. We gave him lip service, maybe. I was all about me, what I wanted to do with my life. But all that changes once you receive Christ. At that instant, you're made a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things become new. And along with that new newness of life, I have a new heart now. A heart that wants to honor God, wants to glorify God, right? But guys, listen, this transformation by the renewing of your mind will only take place if you continually fill your mind with the Word of God. Look at John 8, verses 31 and 2, quickly. This transforming by the renewing of your mind will only take place if you continually fill your mind, if you continually abide in God's word. Uh, John 8, verses 31 and 2, Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, if you 
abide in my word. The word abide is the Greek word meno. It means to remain, to continue. That's the idea. If you continue in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Alethes, truly my disciples. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Guys, now as Christians, as we, uh, as we fill our minds with the word of God, you begin to think the thoughts of God. I mean, God's word is his heart. And, you know, his thoughts expressed in the pages of Scripture, right? And when, you, when you read a novel, we'll say, you're becoming one with the thoughts of the author. That's why you don't want to read a terrible, bad novel, because you're thinking like you're letting that dirt, that garbage get into your mind. And it, it will affect you in some way. That's why Paul said in Philippians 4, look, whatever things are pure and lovely and of good report, think, meditate on these things. Because things that you meditate on from the word of God as you read God's word, his thoughts become your thoughts. And they begin to transform you into his likeness day by day. It's a good title for a radio show. Um, but again, you fill your minds with God's word, you think God's thoughts, which means you stop thinking like the world thinks. The result is that you will be transformed in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit from the inside out. Guys, let me say this to you. God's word teaches that godly living, please don't miss this, God, God's word teaches that godly living always flows from godly thinking. And godly thinking starts with good doctrine being placed in your head. The Bible is very clear on this point. And I want to stress it because oftentimes, well, I try my best to always lay a doctrinal foundation for everything I teach. Sometimes it gets a little laborious for some people, okay? Uh, giving them a little more information than they feel they need. Really today, especially with young people, but not only with young people, they come and hear me teach, and I can see the look on their faces like, well, just get to it. What do you, you know, I just want, give me what I need to be a victorious Christian. You know, don't go all, why is all this information necessary, all this doctrine? Why is all this doctrine necessary? I had a woman say to me years ago, you know what, I really don't like all that doctrine. <laughs> doctrine means teaching, right? I mean, you know. Paul told us to you know, give sound doctrine. The Greek is healthy teaching, right? But some people, they have fallen prey to what is known as pragmatism. What is pragmatism? Very big in the church years ago. It's still big today. Pragmatism basically is defined this way, where success equals truth. Now think about that. Where people judge truth by if it works, is it success? It does it bring success? God's words is just the opposite. Truth brings success in the kingdom of God. Not success equals truth, but truth equals success, right? Jesus said, you know, blessed are you who believe without what? Seeing. 
You have so many people that want to bypass the instruction, get right to, you know, the end result. It's like saying, I want to be a cop, but I don't want to go through all that training. I just want to put on the uniform, strap on the gun, and go out and be a cop. That's how people die. Mostly yourself. That's why we take so much time laying a good, solid doctrinal foundation. Because learning always then leads to living. Never the other way around. This is why it's so important that we understand what God's Word has said doctrinally. If we're ever going... Paul wrote Ephesians. The first three chapters lay out doctrine. The last three lay out duty. Because Paul knew you can't live the life that God wants you to live until you first understand what God has made you in Christ. Right? So let me say it again. God's word teaches us that godly living always flows from godly thinking. Godly thinking always comes from, from godly good doctrine being put into your mind. Um, and not only, though, where doctrine is put into your mind, it has to be hidden in your heart if it's going to really begin to transform your life. We all know Psalm 119, verses 9 and 11. How can a young man, young woman, cleanse their way? By taking heed according to your word. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Guys, I say that because so many Christians, you know, if they open the Bible at all in the morning before they go to church... They just, you know, they just do the, the, the finger thing. What does that mean? Open it up, put their finger down. Oh, okay, I'll read this verse today or that two verses. And suddenly, that's all they need. They got their magic fix for the day. I'm, I'm, I'm all set to go for God. It's, it's sad. They're not taking the time, many Christians, to actually read it, meditate on it, and, and hide it in their hearts. Look, I'm absolutely convinced that the reason so many Christians are still living worldly, carnal lives is because, listen, this is profound. Don't miss this. They're still thinking worldly thoughts. The reason that so many Christians are still living worldly lives is because they're still thinking worldly thoughts. Why is that? Well, because their minds are still conformed to this world's way of thinking because... They have not allowed their minds to be transformed by the renewing that comes as you read, study, and hide God's word in your heart. It's not rocket science. It's not some deep, profound, esoteric principle that was lost for many centuries, but now we're discovering. This is just Christianity 101. Now look, I'm not saying that they don't necessarily read the Bible at all, or even maybe go to Bible study. They might, I doubt it, but they might. It's been my experience that the most carnal Christians are the ones that never take their Bibles anywhere, never read it. They do come to church, which is sporadic. Um, they may, you know, open them up and read, but then that's it. They're probably not going to Bible study at all, but they'll come to a church service here and there on a Sunday morning. So I'm not saying they never read the Bible. Um... It just means that they're not serious about putting into practice what they're learning. That's the bottom line. Uh, turn to James 1. Uh, you all know it's, James says something very important uh, along these lines. James 1, verse 22. 
But don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourself. There's a lot of people who are fooling themselves into thinking because they come to church and they hear God's word. That's all they need. Again, the goal of learning is living. If it's only head knowledge and never gets translated into life practice, it's worthless. Look, I'll read to you from Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 to 14. And maybe you know somebody like this. I do. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the, the first principles or the most basic principles uh, of the Word of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he, she, is a baby. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age or have grown up. They're not sucking on a bottle anymore like an infant. They have grown up in their walk with God. They can take the deeper things of God, the meat of the word, right? Or they should if they've been a Christian for any length of time, right? Um, for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he, she is a babe, but solid food belongs to those who are of full age, those who by reason of use have exercised their senses to discern both good and evil. In other words, you've got to put it into practice. That's how you grow. Some people th say to me, well, you know, I don't feel like I'm growing at all. Okay, oh, are you coming to church faithfully? I'm trying. Do you read your Bible in your own private devotions? Not often. But the big thing is what they do know, they're not taking out into their daily lives and applying. Again, if it just sits in your head, it's worthless. It will not change you is the idea. Guys, if you come to church and hear the word of God being taught, and you, know, and you basically let it go in one ear and out the other it, without any real desire to obey it, listen. Although the word of God is, is in itself living and powerful, it will be rendered lifeless and powerless in your life when it comes to change. It won't produce any change in your life. But guys, listen. Again, spiritual warfare at its core is a fight for control of a person's thinking. One of the classic passages on this is 2 Corinthians 10. Will you please turn to it? Again, spiritual warfare at, at its core is a fight for control of a person's thinking. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 10. This is not the only passage on the subject, but this is, I think, one of the classic ones. So let's read it. 2 Corinthians 10, starting with verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we live in these bodies, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not physical, okay, like you would use in a physical war. It's not, you know, AK-47s and bazookas and Apache helicopters and so on, right? The weapons of our warfare are not physical, but they are mighty in God, listen, for the pulling down of strongholds. Paul is saying here that spiritual warfare is all about Pulling down strongholds. Yeah, okay, but what does that mean? What are these strongholds? Well, he tells us in verse 5. Casting down arguments and every high thing 
that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So guys, pulling down strongholds in verse 4 relates to casting down arguments in verse 5. In verse 4, Paul gives the metaphor. In verse 5, he explains the metaphor. These strongholds are arguments. Okay? All right, let's pray. I mean, you get it? They're arguments. Okay, can you give us just a little more? Yeah, sure. I mean, what strongholds are arguments, but what exactly does that mean? The Greek word is logismos, and it means thoughts, opinions, philosophies, theories, or to sum it all up, ideologies. What are ideologies? They are belief systems. Belief systems. The and in verse 5 is the Greek word chi and should be translated in this context even. Paul is saying that we are fighting against ideologies even every high thing. Or in other words, every proud, arrogant, lofty belief system that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And of course, this would include all the false religions on the planet Earth, including the cults. But it would also include things like atheism, communism, Marxism, secular humanism, and of course, naturalism. Naturalism. Guys, naturalism is the reigning ideology of our day, embraced by intellectual scientists and by most of academia in our country and across the world. The, a naturalist believes that the natural realm is all there is. And that everything came into existence through natural processes like the Big Bang without any supernatural input from a deity. In fact, most if not all naturalists believe that God only exists as a fantasy in the minds of religious non-intellectuals. Let me paraphrase. If you believe in God, you're a superstitious religious dummy. They might not say that to your face. They might be a little more gracious, but they're thinking it. They know you're a born-again Christian. That's what they're thinking. Listen, in our universities, naturalism is the virtually unquestioned assumption upon which all matters of life are based, including and especially the theory of evolution. Now, can I just stop and just for a second and say this? Our culture has, in our uh, public school systems, has completely banished God from any teaching on the origin of life, okay? And they have given themselves over exclusively to the teaching of evolution, right? What, the last four or five mass murders in our country were done by teenagers? More and more? It's becoming a teen phenomenon. Here's my question. If you teach kids from the time they're five years old they came from animals, why are you so dumbfounded when they act like animals? I mean, think about that for a minute, right? In, in Psalm 8, God says that he made us a little lower than the angels. Evolution says we evolved a little higher than the apes. You tell me what philosophy, what ideology is going to create the most problems in a society. 
I just marvel at how people are just shocked. How could this happen? It's the guns. Take all the guns away. Forget about the guns. This is a problem in the heart of people. And it's manifesting itself in young people, young adults, who have lived with this, lived with this incredibly vacuous, nihilistic, uh, you were just a product of an accident uh, in the genetic process. You know, there's no God. There's no ultimate right or wrong. There's no standing before God on the day of judgment and giving an account. You pretty much eat, drink, and be married because when you die, that's it. And so you pump that incessantly into a kid's brain from the time they're 5 to the time they're 15 or 18. Should it surprise us when they have no hope? And they decide to go out in a blaze of glory and kill a bunch of people and then themselves? All right, let me bring this to a close. And i got to set this up for next week. I, we're not going to get as far as I wanted, but you know me. Listen, to state it again, spiritual warfare is a battle against the brainwashing of the devil who has pumped incessantly into the minds of people through academia, mass media, and many other outlets, all of his satanic propaganda. This means that primarily, now this is where we commit spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is both internal and external. We fight against the devil to live the life God wants us to live, but then we have a ministry to the world. What is that? Well, this is where we are being used by God to rescue people that have been taken captive by the devil through his lies. And what will set them free? We just read it. John, uh, John 8, 31 and 2. The word of God. Quickly, turn to 2 Timothy 2. And again, I'm just going to set this up for next week. But 2 Timothy 2. Let's look at verses 23 to 26. I'll read it to you the NLT 2nd edition. 2 Timothy 2, verse 23. Again I say, don't get involved in foolish, ignorant arguments that only start fights. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but, be, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, and be patient with difficult people. God help us. Gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Perhaps God will change those people's hearts and they will learn the truth. Then they will come to their senses and escape the devil's trap, for they have been taken, held captive by him to do whatever he wants. Guys, this is really now where spiritual warfare intersects with our lives as believers. The devil, we're told to go out into all the world and set the captives free. Preach the gospel. The devil has taken unbelievers captive. We have the truth that can set them free, right? So go into all the world and preach the good news to every person. The devil says, I don't want that. I don't want you going into all the world and setting free by teaching the truth of God all those that I have blinded and taken captive. I've worked hard at blinding these people, taking them captive. I don't want you messing around, setting them free. And so he's going to do whatever he can. Listen to me, whatever we allow him to do to take us out to neutralize our walk and destroy our witness and yet remember what paul promised us in second corinthians 10 verse 4 for the weapons of our warfare are not physical but mighty in god for the pulling down 
of strongholds. You know, he never tells us what those weapons are, right? We know there's at least two because he uses plural, right? Why doesn't Paul tell us what the weapons are that God has given us to pull down strongholds? Because honestly, I don't think he felt he needed to. But if you want scripture, Ephesians chapter 6 tells us that the, that the weapons of our warfare are the word of God and prayer. Now, we should know that, obviously, we do. So he didn't articulate in 2 Corinthians 10, but we understand where he's coming from. Let me end this morning with a devotional thought. We've already laid some groundwork doctrinally. And again, I'm just setting this up for next time. As we said a few moments ago, personal holiness is the key to spiritual victory. And that, per, and that personal holiness is achieved by staying in the Word of God. But not just staying in the Word of God, understanding it, reading it, uh, and then obeying what God has commanded us to do in our daily lives as His kids. But as we just quoted James 1.22, Christians can be hearers of the Word, they can be readers of the Word, come to church and hear the Word, without being doers of the Word. Everything hinges on our living we have to learn before we can live but if it's not taken to the next step all the learning is useless it's head knowledge i've known people over the years that their heads are just jammed full of bible facts some of them i read are theologians look at their home life it's tragic it's not getting translated all this head knowledge into their daily lives they're not victorious at all. They're completely defeated. It all hinges, yes, in knowing the word, you have to know it to live it, but you have to then live it, obey it. Why aren't so many Christians not really obeying God's word, although they know it? I mean, what motivates, what animates children of God to obey Jesus and his word. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. And I give to them eternal life. I mean, what, what is the motivation for our, our obedience to Jesus? What is the thing that propels us, animates our walk in obeying what he has said? We don't have to guess because Jesus told us earlier in John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus said, if you love me, the Greek is since. Since you love me, obey my commandments. One of the fruits of knowing Jesus in truth is loving him. One of the ways that that love works its way out into our daily lives is by obeying him. Let me just end with a couple of questions and it will close and pick it up next time. How many here love Jesus? raise your hand great all of you and I believe you I honestly believe you let me ask another question a little more probing and I don't want to see any hands it's for you to ponder how many here who are Christians how many here not only love Jesus but but are in love with Jesus think about that Of course, the question you come back with is, how do I know if I, I'm in love with Jesus? That's an excellent question. And next week, I want to probe that. And guys, this is no small thing. 
I really believe as we explore this simple concept, I believe it's going to hold the secret and the power for living a dynamic Christian life of holiness and obedience. You know, again, we, we're often looking for some, some deep, profound spiritual insight. A principle, if I can just latch onto it, it will catapult me into victorious Christian living. It doesn't work that way. I've looked. It's not there. God doesn't deal with hidden truths. He deals with truths right out in the open. This is one of those truths. I believe the simple logic as we answer this question, are you in love with Jesus? As we answer it next week, if you allow it, that simple thought will literally transform your life. And I don't say that, you know, I'm not being dramatic. This simple yet deeply profound thought will absolutely radically change your life. I'm convinced of it. So come on back next time. We will look at this issue a little more closely. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Of course, your word is truth. We thank you that you've opened our eyes to your truth. But, Lord, now that we're Christians, we often struggle in the flesh to obey you. And, Lord, give us grace to understand it's not as hard as we are making it out to be. I think it's very simple. And we, we ask, Lord, that you would continue to bless this study next week as we finish it. Um, we just pray that you would guide us. Uh, and we just thank you, Lord. We ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.